Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that looks at a range of different ways we get around, from cars, buses, trains and planes. I'm David Brown, and in this program we look at news stories including Google's plan for tomorrow's dashboards. We talk with Professor Corin Mully from Sydney University about what level public transport fares should be set for the best results both in the short and long term. We road test the Haval H9, a new Chinese SUV on the Australian market. And in our panel discussion with Errol Smith, we take a light-hearted look at stories including a Google pattern would glue pedestrians to self-driving cars. Have a question or a comment? Send it to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. You can hear longer versions of the interviews, road tests and quirky news by going to drivenmedia.com.au or podcast the whole program from iTunes or your favourite podcast service. Now to start the program, let's have the news. Each year, Google holds its I.O. conference, which is software developer focused. This year, Google showcased an all-new car dashboard. It features a massive touchscreen on the car's centre stack and a digital display behind the steering wheel. It is straight-up Android N that you'll soon find not only on your smartphone but also on your tablet or other Android device. In the car, it is independent of your mobile phone. The idea is to have a common system across many cars. This is ideal if you get into a new car, but it totally undermines car companies to have a unique dashboard set up for their vehicles. Google's Android N-based dashboard system is still in development, but it could begin appearing on real-world cars in 2017 or soon after. Drivers can see trains approaching but cannot accurately judge their speed when proceeding through a passive level crossing, a study has found. Sight distances are a critical calculation for road safety, but research from the Queensland University of Technology and the Australasian Centre for Rail Innovation suggests that figures used until recently have been inaccurate. Dr. Gregore LaRue said what we found was that most drivers could see the train from a very long distance, with 85% identifying a train further than 1,450 metres. However, drivers' estimates of train speeds were very poor and up to 44% under the actual train speed. The standards have now been upgraded. Despite greater coverage of driverless technology advancements over the past few years, most Americans still prefer to drive themselves, at least to some degree. This is the conclusion from researchers at the University of Michigan's Transport Research Institute. 46% of respondents prefer to retain full control while driving, while nearly 39% prefer a partially self-driving vehicle with occasional control by the driver. Just under 16% would rather ride in a completely self-driving vehicle. About two-thirds of respondents said that they were moderately or very concerned about riding in a completely self-driving vehicle, while about half have the same levels of concern regarding partially self-driving vehicles. According to the report, 95% of respondents want to have a steering wheel and accelerate and brake pedals available to control completely self-driving cars when desired or if needed. 
Japan has now more electric car charging stops than petrol stations, according to a recent survey by Nissan. Apparently there are now 40,000 recharge points and only 35,000 service stations. In stark contrast, in the US, there are currently only 9,000 public charging stations, but 114,500 service stations. The comparison is a little misleading. A service station serves many people and a tank full of petrol lasts many kilometres, while an electric charging point is for one vehicle, the charge of which will only last for about 100 kilometres. Encouraged by Japan's experience, other countries are improving their electric vehicle infrastructure, with one recent report predicting that electric car sales could reach 41 million worldwide by 2040, accounting for one in four cars on the road. Car sharing services have become increasingly popular over the past few years, and many of them operate fleets of battery electric cars. But now a German company, B0, is launching a car-sharing service based solely on hydrogen-powered cars. The company will be using Hyundai iX35 fuel cell SUV vehicles. While Germany has a plan to deploy a nationwide network of hydrogen stations, it has not been fully funded and early sites have been delayed. There are currently only around 20 public hydrogen refueling stations operating in Germany. The advantage over an electric car is that the iX35 fuel cell is rated with a range of 600 kilometres. ExxonMobil is the world's largest publicly traded international oil and gas company. They have been associated with efforts to discredit the scientific indications of climate change in order to support their fossil fuel business. It is claimed that they were aware of man-made climate change issues as far back as the 1970s. But in the lead-up to climate change talks in Paris last year, they came out in favour of a carbon tax. Now they have announced an agreement with the fuel cell energy company to pursue novel technology in power plant carbon dioxide capture through a new application of carbonate fuel cells. The principle is to capture carbon dioxide from power plants and use it to feed fuel cells. Bentley's new SUV, the Bentayga, will be best known for its luxury and taking a super prestige car maker into the realm of all-wheel drive. But perhaps it should be known for demonstrating just how far electrical wiring is now part of a modern car. A muscle car in the past might have a wiring loom that weighs around 5 kilograms. But the Pentega's overall wiring weighs a massive 50 kilograms. There are 90 control modules or computers that have 100 million lines of code. Why do you need this? Well, the car offers four long-range radar systems, up to 12 short-range ultrasonic parking sensors, six camera systems, dozens of lighting elements, a 48-volt suspension system, an 18-speaker stereo, and seats that can warm, cool, and massage occupants, among other things. And, of course, a champagne fridge. And that has been the news. Everyone seems to have an opinion about public transport fares. Most think they should be lower and some even suggest they should be free. But does it matter that much? 
And what are the consequences of different prices, not just in the short term, such as who decides to get a bus or a train rather than use their car, but also in the long term, which includes where we choose to live and work and the resultant impact on the shape of the city that develops? Professor Corin Mully is the founding chair in public transport at the Institute of Transport and Logistics Studies at the University of Sydney. She's an absolute whiz at this sort of thing. Or to put it more formally, she led, for example, a high-profile European and UK consortia undertaking benchmarking in urban public transport and has provided both practical and strategic advice to local and national governments. Now, she has written many technical papers and presented at high-powered forums, but I like how she has a heart for all the people we are trying to serve and the practical realities under which they have to manage their lives. She has also done a lot of work in the history of transport, which I love. We must talk about that at a later date. But down to the detail. I asked her about public transport fare price elasticity. That is, if you vary the price, does it affect travel behaviour? Clearly, as part of price, because we talk in transport as price being a combination of time and money, the fare is clearly an influence. It's typically said, although I haven't seen the evidence for Sydney, that train travellers are more inelastic in their demand than bus travellers. And that's typically because commuters tend to use trains rather than buses. That's certainly true in cities like London. And so they're less price sensitive, whereas bus users are typically more price sensitive. You tend to be locked into the train, both in sense of what your options are, but also your flexibility and your and your being used to the system and being comfortable with it? It's partly that, and I think it's partly that, and it's not so true for Sydney because there are big areas of Sydney that don't have access to train. It's mainly, I think, that commuters spread themselves out along train lines, much more so than along bus lines which tend to move when they're not fixed in their infrastructure. You can adapt the system to the demand in a bus because you can, they can go on different roads. That's right. So once you've built your rail line or your light rail, you're limited in what you can do. You can change the frequency, you can change the stopping pattern, but you can't change where it goes. And that's why I've been on um, record in Sydney for saying, it's really important that you look at where people are and where they want to go and how many of them there are before you decide on mode. Only that way do you get the right mode for the volumes that you're looking at. You know, not only now, but also into the future and what you're expecting to do. So that may be one of the good reasons for building the Northwest Rail Line is that you want to serve that area which is growing but if that's your, one of your motivations, one would perhaps argue that you should have started a few years ago because the northwest growth area is completely different now than it was five years ago. And probably more importantly than that, the people that have moved in in the last five years have got a car dependency, which they wouldn't have had if the public transport had been there first. Yes, so that if you built the transport first, you have a chance of letting this the area develop around the system so that they can use it well rather than trying to put it in after and have people adapt. That's right. I don't know. Do you know Breakfast Point? 
down on the water there. On the water, yes. I think that that is one of the, the nicest planned designs that I've ever seen. And yet when it was first built, nice wide roads, but the public transport ran around the edge and the public transport was only every, every half hour. So, you know, the adverts might just as well have said, come and live here, but remember, you need to bring a car with you. And once people have moved in with their cars, it's very difficult to get them out of them. Corin, I appreciate all your thoughts and ideas. Thank you very much for your time. That's okay. And that was Professor Corin Mully, who is the founding chair in public transport at the Institute of Transport and Logistics Studies at the University of Sydney. And we have a longer interview with Professor Mully that can be found on our website at drivenmedia.com.au, including how she talks about establishing the right transport services in your area, not just based on the person that has the contract for the buses, but on what the people really need and people having a chance to comment on what their needs are. It's nice to know that Sydney University Institute of Transport and Logistics Studies has recognised the value of Overdrive's interview and has loaded them up on their own website. Overdrive. For more information and past programs, go to drivenmedia.com.au. Can China produce a good car? Or more to the point, can a Chinese vehicle sell in the Australian market? There is now a new SUV on the market called the Haval. It hails under the banner of being the SUV division of Great Wall Motors. Funny I haven't seen this in much part of their marketing, although I did find one reference to GWM. No reference to the actual full words Great Wall Motors. They say that they are the number one SUV brand in China where they sold their first car in 2002. There are three models on the Australian market, all SUVs of course, and Errol Smith and I have been driving their biggest model, the seven-seater H9, and Errol joins us on the line to discuss it now. Errol, the models are H2, H8 and H9, they sound a bit like the name of bulldozers. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's all a bit industrial, isn't it? And all you really sort of can interpret from that is that the higher number is a bigger vehicle. <laughs> well, that's just fair enough. And H for Haval. Haval sounds a bit... Uh, the young fella thought it sounded a bit Indian along the way, but nonetheless, it's Chinese. Actually, you think there are a few uh, reasonable points about it. Uh, you you like uh, the four-wheel drive capability? The H9, at least, is a, is a real four-wheel drive. It's got a, a ladder frame chassis and four-wheel drive modes, rear diff lock, hill descent control, all that kind of stuff. In other words, it's not a soft rotor like some of the other sort of toys we get, which are just tall passenger vehicles. Grown-up station wagons. A few features, a few luxury features too. I like how the base model is called the premium. We were driving the Lux, which is the top version. You get a sunroof with a with a shade, a sat-nav, tire pressure sensors, tri-zone tri climate control, automatic lights and wipers, heated seats, etc., and this is a big vehicle, seven seats with a third row for the kids. A lot of features for your money. You enjoyed the dash, e easy to read? Yeah, unlike some of the other cars we test, it's the, the dash is sort of simple and uncluttered. 
it's got a, a large touchscreen display with with a menu system for you know most of the other sort of things you're not going to use very often. It's quite easy to drive and it's not very in- inspiring to look at, but it's not ugly, unlike some other vehicles we've tested from from Asia in the past. It's not going to look out of place on the road. I think it, it's, it's, you know, it could be mistaken for... A reasonable car. A reasonable car, yeah. Hmm. It's pretty hard to make big SUVs look good. Toyota Land Cruiser is not what you call elegant, although I must confess the Range Rovers and Land Rovers, not the base Discovery, but the Discovery Sport. The base Discovery is just very boxy. Discovery Sport, I think, is a little bit better. So I was saying it's a bit hard to make them look really good, but I guess making them look okay is a, a reasonable achievement, including that it's got a steering wheel that you appreciated over and above uh, the last SUV we drove. We had the Ford Everest, which is basically a, a converted um, Ford Ranger into a passenger vehicle, and you couldn't adjust the steering wheel in and out, much to my surprise, but you can on the Haval. Hmm. And they're backing it up, a reasonable warranty. Five-year, 100,000-kilometre warranty and uh, five-year, 24-7 uh, roadside assistance. So they're sort of trying to bat off the um, the poor reputation that some of the, the previous generation of, of Chinese models had with reliability and things. We tend to live and die on our image and the image and, and selling Jap- uh, Chinese cars in Australia has not been a great success. So, in a way, they're really having to push against the tide, aren't they? Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's a better warranty than you'll get from Toyota, for example. <laughs> so. Perhaps not all fantastic. What did you find the most notable feature in it? Well, not unlike the, the Ford Everest, it, there's a lot of road noise in it. This kind of feels like a four-wheel drive commercial four-wheel drive that got turned into a passenger vehicle. It has that kind of feel about it in the, in the road noise, in the cabin and the, and the ride. I found, noticed a high-pitched whine from the transmission when the revs are up. The automatic seems to hunt for, for gears at low speeds, which was um, a, a bit off-putting. But that's sort of the, you know, the only sort of big-ticket sort of issues I, I had with it, and none of them are deal-breakers, really. Errol, lovely to talk to you. I appreciate that. Thanks for your time. No worries, David. And that's our very own Errol Smith talking about the Haval H9, a Chinese-made SUV, large SUV, that is now on the Australian market. And if you want to hear a longer chat with Errol and I about the car, go to our website at drivenmedia.com.au where we talk a little bit more about some of the pros and cons and how we feel about the car overall. You're listening to Overdrive. Well, let's get Errol back again and talk some quirky news. G'day, Errol, and have you got a story for us? Well, David, Google's driverless cars are coming, and the internet behemoth is busy planning new and wacky ways to make them as safe as possible, especially for when they hit something like, well, you. Their newest plan is to turn their cars into rolling flypaper traps, so that when they inevitably hit a pedestrian, the hapless victim will get stuck to the bonnet rather than bouncing back off and hitting something even harder, like the road, which is usually what happens. And while this sounds like something Wiley Coyote would come up with to catch the roadrunner, they've actually got a patent and everything. (laughs) Wiley Coyote, that's exactly right. There is an issue that if you get hit by something and you career off or you're thrown off in another direction, you might be thrown into the path of another car 
or you may be thrown under the car that's hit you or dragged along the side. So there is a serious issue. And in fact, some cars, if you have a big prang, they will automatically put the brakes on so that the car doesn't roll off for the same problem, that it might roll off into something more dangerous. Or over somebody. Well, that's true too. And all the modern cars, of course, have to meet design standards so that they don't have sharp edges on the front of the car so they don't less likely to you know yes. break limbs and things like that that's always the problem with a bull bar mm, yes if you kick the legs out from a pedestrian which is bad but they'll flop onto the bonnet and they're making bonnets pop up so that they're more bouncy and they even got airbags up around the join well near the join between the a windscreen and the body of the car so that a pedestrian's head may be protected a little. So they're all thinking in that direction. Undoubtedly, that's very, very important. And this might be the case. There is a suggestion, of course, though, if you're stuck on the bonnet and two cars are locked together, I'm not sure that you want to be held in that particular position. But overall, it's probably a reasonable issue to try and address uh, Errol do you think that Google really is uh, going to do it or is just trying to be seen to push the envelope as far as possible for autonomous technology? I think it's a bit of both. Uh, I think there's a lot of fear about autonomous cars that they'll just you know run rampant and there'll be Terminator type take over the world type things happening with their cars. They're trying to do everything they can to at least give the impression that their cars are as, as safe as humanly possible. And, of course, they're, they've had to come up with some special paint. So they've got this sort of special not sticky tool. Something actually hits it paint, probably from Acme Corporation. Yeah. <laughs> beep, beep, road runner. The point is, of course, that dirt won't stick to it in normal operations but when something thumps on it it breaks the seal and the glue then can come out and work of course the irony of, of all this is that the pedestrian who probably gets hit by one of their cars probably walked in front of the google car while distracted by their google powered android smartphone <laughs> but you see the problem is that even as i've said before if autonomous cars reduce accidents they claim by 80 or 90 percent even if it's 50 percent if they cause one extra one then all hell will pay there'll be calls for them to be banned and all that stuff mm. google obviously they really don't want to let go of their customers i guess <laughs> boom, boom. <laughs> i don't know what would be more embarrassing driving a google car or being stuck to it those little <laughs> bubble cars they're not very pretty are they that improves before they release them into the real world. <laughs> if we have flypaper on the front, what's next, a fly zapper? Although, Errol, there will be the environmental one. That'll be a Venus flytrap. <laughs> Genetically engineered to be big enough to hold a pedestrian. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Hopefully it won't get crushed in the jaws. Yes. It should be said that Google apparently is quoted as saying, prospective product announcements should not necessarily be inferred from our patents, which basically says there's no guarantee it's going to be made. Yes, maybe they're just patenting it so that nobody else can patent it. I think they're pretty safe. <laughs> now, Errol, here is a story. A popular Welsh entertainer has recorded her latest song. She was entirely in an electric car or electric cars 
and she did it to highlight their quiet, relaxing ride. Cherry Matthews and a band recorded the bossa nova-inspired tune Float On Down to Monte Carlo. I would have thought they should have done it in a boat, given the name of the song, but it's a joint venture deal with the British government who are desperately trying to make sure that they lead the world in autonomous vehicles so as to get all the spin-off of jobs and activity in creating these new devices. Electric vehicles, at least, yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry, electric vehicles, yeah. So, the musicians are inside a BMW, a Kia Soul, a Mitsubishi Outlander Fev, and a Nissan ENV200 Combi, which I don't think we get here, to capture the sessions. Now, it had she was sitting in the back with a guitar, and another guy was sitting there with a trumpet, I believe. Yes, yeah, they've recorded the whole thing inside the car, but... Feels like a, a little bit of a gimmick to me. And, and, and of course, you can cheat with modern electronics, electronic processing of noise reduction and things. Anyway, it's a good sort of bit of fun. The, the, the video, the music video that goes along with it shows them in the cars, you know, recording the, the track. So it's all just sort of a, a big ad for the uh, electric car industry in, in the UK. It does bring a new meaning to electronic music. <laughs> The uh, thing there is that I think people will do anything not to have a drummer. <laughs> Mate, we'd love to have you in the band, but you just won't fit in the car. <laughs> One of them was a, a combi, so yeah, there were some big enough cars there for the drummer and his gear, I guess. <laughs> I tell you what, it can't be the Jaguar we had last week. No, you, you, no matter how loud your, your music was, you wouldn't hear it over the exhaust. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder whether you could add to your musical track noises from inside the car, the air conditioning, the fan at various speeds, opening and shutting the glove box, yeah. or the navigation voiceover turn right as you played in the road test this week. When I first read the headline of this story, I, I, that's what I thought they meant, that they'd actually recorded the sound that the car makes, you know, the, all the whining of the electric motor and all the beeps and... Mm noises from the control systems no they're actually recorded music but uh, maybe this is a, a a way for to make electric cars safer is that you'll know that they're coming not from the engine <laughs> noise but from the bad music playing out of them and if you would like to hear errol and i discuss some more quirky issues go to our website at drivenmedia.com.au and we have two more subjects for this week including ballet dancing beetles may help the navigation in your car and we are into the shared economy how about renting out someone else's classic car anything from a ferrari to a mustang And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Errol Smith, Professor Corin Mully and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can listen to longer segments of the features, road tests and quirky news on our website at drivenmedia.com.au or podcast the whole program on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 